Spring had come, but barely the day a train carrying Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant wheezed into Culpeper Courthouse, Virginia. Once a thriving market town, fifty miles southwest of Washington, D.C., Culpeper had become the locus of the Army of the Potomac's winter encampment, a vast domain of smoke, guns, and mud-stained soldiers. A chill afternoon downpour washed away the last of the winter snow. It was March 25, 1864. The war was edging into its fourth year. Grant emerged from the train without fanfare, looking more like a headquarters clerk than the general-in-chief of the Union armies. He cultivated a phlegmatic air, low-key, not austere but immensely reserved. Lieutenant Colonel Theodore Lyman, a Harvard-educated staff officer who saw him around this time, described the famous general as having somewhat the air of a Yankee schoolmaster buttoned in a military coat. He was quiet, even taciturn, but beneath the calm exterior Lyman glimpsed a vein of iron. Grant habitually wears an expression as if he had determined to drive his head through a brick wall and was about to do it. I have much confidence in him. Lyman's faith stemmed from more than Grant's appearance. By 1864 he was the North's preeminent general, having captured two Confederate armies, at Fort Donelson and Vicksburg, repelled a third, Shiloh, and driven a fourth in full retreat from a formidable defensive position, Chattanooga. But the way in which Grant seemed not to notice his own success, his simple attention to business, only added to his mystique. At Chattanooga, for example, the Union army had been besieged by a Confederate army entrenched on the mountains overlooking the city. The troops inside the town had been virtually cut off from the outside world, and they were hungry and demoralized. Everything seemed to change when Grant showed up. He began to see things move, one veteran recalled. We felt everything came from a plan. He came into the army quietly, no splendor, no heirs, no staff. He used to go about alone. He began the campaign the moment he reached the field. Within weeks, Grant had organized the counterpunch that broke the Confederate Army's grip on Chattanooga and sent it reeling into Georgia. For that, President Abraham Lincoln decided to place him in charge of all the Union armies, with the revived rank of Lieutenant General, a grade previously held only by George Washington. Grant was not quite forty-two years old when he became general-in-chief. He replaced forty-nine-year-old Henry Wager Halleck, who had assumed the post in July 1862 after presiding over a notable string of Union victories in the Western Theater. Halleck was not sorry to relinquish the job. As general-in-chief, he had adopted the principle that he ought not give field commanders specific instructions. Only the general on the spot, he believed, could know the true situation and make fully informed decisions. For that reason, he usually stopped short of giving direct orders, much to Lincoln's dismay. On one occasion, when Halleck refused to tell a subordinate what specific course to take, the President erupted. If in such a difficulty as this you do not help, you fail me precisely in the point for which I sought your assistance. Halleck refused to bend and instead offered to resign in light of the very important difference of opinion that divided them. 
Lincoln grudgingly withdrew his complaint, but thereafter regarded Halleck as merely a first-rate clerk. After Grant took over, Halleck stayed on as Army Chief of Staff, a position which, wise-cracked one general, was very much like a fellow marrying a woman with the understanding that he should not sleep with her. But Halleck did not mind. He continued to function much as he had done previously, coordinating the vast military administrative responsibilities of the War Department and Army Headquarters. Grant, unlike his predecessor, had few qualms about giving subordinates precise direction. Indeed, his conception for the coming campaign of 1864 depended upon the activist command style. 